Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them, and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. On this episode, I'm joined by Louisa Weiss. Louisa is a PhD student in Dublin who's been working on a very interesting thromboinflammation project, looking at extracellular vesicles in patients treated with rivaroxaban. So don't worry if you don't know what extracellular vesicles are, or thromboinflammation is, or rivaroxaban for that matter. We're going to explain it all. It really is a fascinating emerging area of science that, as to me at least, very clear clinical relevance. So if you're interested in thrombosis and anticoagulation, or even if you're just taking one of these medications, this is certainly a conversation not to miss. Okay, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Louisa Weiss, who is a PhD student in Dublin. Um, First came across Louisa when I saw a post on Twitter um, about a recent paper that she'd uh, she'd written and I was really intrigued so I've asked her on the podcast happily she said yes despite only ever having done two podcast episodes and no one listening to this um, but it's going to be a really interesting discussion um, and hopefully give me some ideas as well so welcome Louisa. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, so we're going to talk about your recent publication in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis which is titled, let me just take a deep breath, non-valvular atrial fibrillation patients anticoagulated with rivaroxaban compared with warfarin exhibit reduced circulating extracellular vesicles with attenuated pro-inflammatory protein signatures. That's right, isn't it? Yes. This is a proper paper. This is a real proper science paper. There's loads of there's loads of uh, loads of things to dig down into, um, but I think let's let's start with you firstly. So, how did you end up in Dublin? Because that's where all the work was done. What have you done before? What are the plans afterwards? Just tell me a little bit more. So yeah, I'm originally from Germany. So I did my uh, undergrad degree in Germany in hematology and biochemistry. And then I went to uh, University College Dublin to do a master's actually in genetics. And in my heart, I was always a geneticist. And um, I applied for funding for a PhD. And my supervisor I applied with, she asked me to do my master's project with her. um, So I know all the methods and everything going forward in case I get the funding. I unfortunately didn't, but uh, she had funding to keep me as a PhD student. And um, yeah, four years down the line, I'm still in Dublin and I really, really enjoy my project. Where in Germany are you from? Uh, I'm from near Frankfurt, so quite in the middle. Yeah. And it's an easy flight over to Dublin, isn't it? Yeah, there's <laughs> so many find, options. Yeah, how do you find Dublin? I'm not used to living in a big city, so I'm from a very small town. So it was a bit of adjustment, but it's really handy to have everything close by. You can yeah. walk everywhere. Um, public dr- transport is a nightmare, but um, you learn to live with it. Yeah, sure. And it's a be- it is a beautiful city and a beautiful country, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, 
let's just start fairly simply because people that listen to this are from various sort of different backgrounds. So just tell me what River Roxaban is. Um, obviously, I, I kind of know what it is and how it works, but just briefly, just tell us tell us a bit more. So Rivaroxaban is a direct oral anticoagulant and it's a selective inhibitor for um, activated factor 10. And it inhibits the free version of factor 10 as well as the clot bound and the uh, prothrombinase bound uh, factor 10. And um, yeah, recently um, it was shown that it has the same efficacy and safety as warfarin, but it doesn't require frequent patient monitoring. So um, clinicians prescribe it in, in preference at the moment, um, just because it's more convenient for patients. And um, we were specifically interested in that drug because um, there are a lot of in vitro and in vivo studies coming up that show um, additional beneficial, especially anti-inflammatory effects of rivaroxaban, but the underlying molecular mechanisms remain insufficiently characterized. So 10A is a really interesting molecule, isn't it? Um, this is supposed to be the gatekeeper of hemostasis, which is presumably why people thought that it would be a good thing to inhibit. Um, but it clearly has some inflammatory roles as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you, any ideas how that, that, that manifests, how 10A ends up with inflammation? Um, so 10A can also activate protease-activated receptors or PARs, and they're implicated in inflammatory processes. Um, they're present on, for example, endothelial cells, and um, once activated, their downstream signaling uh, results in the um, expression of uh, um, adhesion molecules on, on, uh, on endothelial cells that can recruit um, lymphocytes and leukocytes and uh, trigger inflammatory responses and thrombus formation. Okay. So this is, as you said, an emerging, emerging mechanism of, of the, the action for all these DOACs of preventing thrombosis, but we think that possibly the prevent thrombosis, not only because of the anticoagulant properties, but also the anti-inflammatory properties. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And, and we think that maybe that, that is more so than warfarin or in a different way. Sorry, can you repeat that, please? Do we think that that's more so than warfarin or in a different way to warfarin? Because obviously warfarin still diminishes the amount of 10A that's there. Yeah, I, I think it is more than warfarin, but based on a um, different mechanism because rivaroxaban itself doesn't uh, diminish the amount of factor 10A is there, um, but it's activity. And I think in the case of inflammation, the activity is the more important part than the absolute amount of factor okay. 10A you have. Okay, that makes, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, all right, let's get down to a bit more nitty gritty then. You guys looked at extracellular vesicles, which I'm really intrigued by. And I have to say, we really don't know much about them. So just give me a very brief summary of extracellular vesicles and what they are, why we know about them and what they do. So uh, extracellular vesicles are uh, submicron particles. So they're usually below um, 1000 nanometers. And um, currently they're classified into two different groups. So small extracellular vesicles that are up to 150 nanometers and released from a fusion of multivesicular bodies, which is a, um, a part of the androsomal uh, compartment with the plasma membrane. And then there's large extracellular vesicles that were previously termed uh, microparticles or microvesicles. And they blab off the um, parent cell 
uh, plasma membrane. And these vesicles were shown to have selective uh, cargos that they can transfer to recipient cells and um, alter their gene expression, protein expression profiles, um, or, and overall a function. And um, we were specifically interested in looking at extracellular vesicles um, because they contain important information in, they, they protect, in our case, proteomic um, signatures of um, diseases or uh, drug treatments. Um, they protect them from degradation and, um, or other, yeah, um, proteo proteosomal um, effects. So um, that we have like that information concentrated mm -hmm. and less um, interference of the plasma itself that has like a high dynamic range and that could overlay uh, interesting biomarkers in, in especially mass spectrometry analysis. Okay, so they're almost acting like a fingerprint of underlying diseases. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and I think I noticed in your, in your paper, you do talk about how the EV profiles were very different to the plasma and the plasma didn't really tell you anything. Is that, is that true? Yeah, there's a published study uh, that compared uh, proteomic profiles of plasma and enriched EVs. And um, by looking at the EVs, they found predictive biomarkers for um, patients with um, ST segment elevation, STEMI. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, with STEMI that couldn't be um, identified in um, when looking at the whole plasma. Okay. Okay. Oh, it's fascinating. And these things presumably aren't very easy to study. Just tell me about how you how you look at them and how you work out what's going on. Yeah, that's still like a big issue in the field. There's um, because it's so new and constantly emerging. Uh, the techniques um, used to look at EVs are constantly emerging as well, and there's no um, proper standardization guidelines. So um, we enriched the um, extracellular vesicle from plasma by sucrose caution ultracentrifugation. So we have a sucrose caution, um, a 30% sucrose solution inside um, an ultracentrifugation tube. And this sucrose caution has the same density as the extracellular vesicles. And through high speed centrifugation, the EVs will pallet on top of the sucrose caution and can um, easily be removed then. But there's um, a lot of other methods to enrich for EVs as well. But we, we found this works best, especially for clinical samples where we have like very tiny volumes and don't want to dilute our samples too much. Okay. So for the uninitiated lab methods, what you're doing there is essentially mixing sugar with water, putting it in a tiny little tube, putting on the plasma on, on top or just sort of chucking it, chucking it all in and then spinning it really hard. Is that, yeah. is that what so, you're doing? Yeah, we have the, the sugar solution at the bottom of the tube and then we yeah. dilute, um, in this case, 100 microliters of plasma with 900 microliters of PBS okay. just to get the viscosity a bit down and then layer that on top of the sucrose cushion, trying not to disturb the interface and then, yeah, spin it really, really hard for uh, six hours. Okay. For six, wow, okay, okay. So, so norm, yeah, normal centrifugation, centrifugation in the lab would be sort of three, five, 10, 20 minutes, but six hours is, uh, is, is yeah, okay, that's a long time. And that's not even, for, for EVs, it's not even that long. There are others who spin it 16 hours overnight, 18 hours overnight. Okay. And, um, I did a lot of optimization for us. Uh, six hours was um, the ideal time point. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So these things really aren't easy to study. And then how do you look at them? You mentioned flow cytometry, and then there's another, um, another thing called nanoparticle tracking. Tell me, tell me about that. 
So um, yeah, these are methods to look at EVs when they're still in plasma. So we do that from the raw plasma before we enrich them. Okay. And nanoparticle tracking analysis is used for the small EVs below 200 nanometers. So it's based, the machine is basically a giant microscope but uh, the microscope itself is not sensitive enough to, um, to see the EVs because they're so small. So uh, a laser beam is passed, passed through the uh, a continuous stream of our EVs diluted in PBS as well. And the microscope detects the light scatter from the EVs. Okay. And um, with an inbuilt software, um, it uses what's called the Stokes-Einstein equation um, and takes into account the Brownian motion of the particles so um, we record uh, 15, 60 second videos. And when they're analyzed, um, the microscope detects uh, the Brownian motion of the particle. And depending on their, um, their Brownian motion, it calculates the size and the concentration okay. of the particles. And then for looking at the larger particles um, above 200 nanometers, we use flow cytometry. Okay. And um, there's a company in the Netherlands called Exometry who have developed uh, specific calibration beads for um, extracellular vesicles because flow cytometry is usually not made for uh, particles that small. And um, even if there are polystyrene beads you can use to calibrate the machine with, but they would have different refractive indices than the EV, EVs would have. And that company in the Netherlands um, um, designed beads and a software that uh, recalibrates the light scatter to, do, uh, to match the properties of the EVs. So um, then we dilute them in PBS as well and run them with this method uh, to, um, in our case, only count and size them as well. Okay. We don't so, use that expression of surface markers. Fine, but you, ca you can do that presumably. Yeah, you can with uh, fluorescent uh, antibodies, but yeah, we, we haven't tried yet. Okay, okay. Is that something you might, might wanna do? Uh, it, would, it would be nice to see um, if certain um, cells release more or less EVs depending on the drug treatment um, but yeah it's it's a lot of work and especially with the volume that of plasma that we're getting um, it's we wanted to prioritize our usual uh, analysis over um, something we've never done before and not yeah. I'm not sure if it will work or not yeah sure how much plasma do you get um, it depends on it's usually between 500 and 800 microliters Oh, right. Okay. 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 And then, yeah, for the most, most of it would um, be used for mass spectrometry and then yeah. ELISA as well. So uh, NTA and flow cytometry doesn't take too much, okay. but would need more for um, fluorescent staining. Okay. Okay. Um, fine. And I understand that extracellular vesicles, not, not just proteins, they've got other things in them as well, RNAs, DNA. Yeah, so they um, they are uh, basically lipid bilayer vesicles. So yeah, they carry lipids and then um, okay. they can have transmembrane and soluble proteins. And they also carry a multitude of uh, a different RNA and D DNA species. And most people uh, or a lot of people are interested in the microRNAs in them. Um, but yeah, we're more or less a pure proteomics lab. So we, we focused on the proteomic contents of them. So that leads me on beautifully to mass spectrometry. Um, tell me more about the mass spec and what you found, um, because there's some really interesting findings from that. And I think this that that basically makes you paper, doesn't it? That's it's 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 such an interesting finding. 
Yeah, so um, we uh, we used six donors, six biological donors in the Rivaroxaban group and six in the Warfarin group, and um, make sure made sure that they're highly matched, so that the differences that we see are actually related to the drug and not to the um, differences in the patients themselves. And then, um, yeah, as I said, we enriched with the ultracentrifugation for EVs, and. Um, then prepared them for mass spectrometry. And what we found were uh, differential expression, expression of highly pro-inflammatory proteins. Um, they're called S100A uh, cal uh, calcium binding proteins, um, especially S100A7, 8, and 9. And um, also uh, we found differential expression of uh, various complement factors. So the S100A proteins um, are highly pro-inflammatory and we found their decreased expression in rivaroxaban-treated patients, which um, could potentially point towards attenuated inflammation in these patients. Mm. And that is in line with um, the complement factors that we found are uh, complement C4 binding protein, so complement 4 binding protein. And these are negative regulators of the complement activation. So they um, basically inhibit the comp complement activation. And we found their increased expression in rivaroxaban treated patients. So that also um, shows like diminished complement activation and could um, point towards diminished inflammation overall in rivaroxaban treated patients relative to warfarin. Okay. And there was a very intriguing finding, but I don't think it was particularly statistically significant that patients that were longer on treatment had these effects being more pronounced. Is that right? Yeah. So we also uh, looked at um, ELISA for, in this case, uh, P-selectin, which is uh, um, a surface protein on um, platelets and endothelial cells. And when platelets and endothelial cells are activated, they uh, cleave um, P-selectin. And what we detected was the soluble form in plasma. And yeah, we found uh, a significant, uh, a non-significant but negative correlation with the amount of P-selectin um, in the patient's plasma and their time on treatment. So, um, which could point towards the longer the patients are on the treatment, the better their endothelial function is, um, which, uh, which could, um, from recent clinical trials, um, rivaroxaban showed some cardioprotective properties, which could be one of the underlying mechanisms, but that would need confirmation in a, in a way bigger cohort. Yeah, this is the COMPASS study, I think, isn't it? Low-dose yeah. rivaroxaban and, and aspirin. I think it's really intriguing because clearly at those doses, you think, well, does it really have an anticoagulant effect? But clearly it's not necessarily being used for that. And I think other people are interested in doing drug levels and things for rivaroxaban. But yeah. to be honest, if you're, no one really knows what the drug levels mean, whether if someone's, you know, got low drug levels, you meant to increase it or anything, and also, if, if, if these are long-standing effects, then when you stop Rivaroxaban, I, I do wonder what happens. You wonder whether, like, presumably, these effects go back to how they were slowly. Um, but one thing I'm kind of interested in is what happens when you reverse these treatments very quickly. Um, so, again, it's something we, we, we will look at in the future. But clearly, these drugs are doing more than just anticoagulation, aren't they? Um, and yeah. clearly, their, their effect is, is there in the blood for a longer period of time than the drug is actually present as well, which I think is, is actually fascinating. And it yeah. illustrates the point of um, lots of new drugs and new treatments having unintended treatment effects. In this case, 
probably a good thing in many cases perhaps a bad thing um and i think you know your work is, is incredibly interesting to that end um and it raises a lot more questions than i guess it answers doesn't it yeah um I, I, we'll talk about the the next steps and what you think is interesting to go forward but there was an, another thing that i i didn't really quite understand probably because i've never understood it in the past is this genetic ontology um just tell me more about that and what you did to sort of elucidate the mechanisms of how River Oxbam was causing these effects. Yeah, so for, for gene ontology, we used a software called Funrich, which was um, initially developed for um, gene ontology analysis of extracellular vesicles. And um, basically what we did uh, for um, the first analysis that I did, I used all the proteins that were identified during our mass spec analysis. And um, I looked at their um, biological, uh, their association to certain biological pathways or uh, cellular compartments. And by looking at cellular compartments, um, um, the proteins that I put in revealed a significant enrichment for the terms exosomes, which is uh, the old classification for small EVs, which further confirmed that we had successfully enriched for EVs. And then by looking at, um, then I only used the differentially expressed proteins for the next step of the analysis. And when I um, put these genes into, into uh, the software, it revealed um, again the effects on the complement pathway in rivaroxaban treated patients, and also um, in inflammatory and coagulation pathways, which would all, which all um, builds up to the function of rivaroxaban that are known. Um, so it just it's a, it's a further step of of confirmation. Okay. Um, what we've done is, or what we say is actually what we see. Okay, so. I think for the last half of this, I'd just like to talk about maybe some of the clinical effects and what you think is interesting for future study, if that's okay. Um, I think one of the things that, that certainly intrigues me is, is what happens when you stop. So what happens when patients stop with Roxaban? Um, but also, I guess you guys didn't have a control group of patients that weren't on anticoagulation either, did you? Uh, no. Um, so there are... Uh, a good few reported studies of the effects of um, uh, extracellular vesicles in patients versus controls, um, and we wanted to specifically look at the effect of the of the drug in only a patient group and not include healthy controls because they um, they wouldn't be first they wouldn't have the disease and second they wouldn't be on any anticoagulant treatment so um, getting conclusions from that would be more more difficult. Fair enough. So what do you think happens when we stop? When a patient stops the river span, say they've, they've got a procedure coming up, um, so they're asked to stop 48 hours before, and maybe they start the drug 48 hours after. Because interestingly, I think your work supports this argument that it is safe to pause DOAX. Um, we don't bridge people. We don't give anyone, we don't give these people interim anticoagulation um, because we know from studies that it seems to be very safe. The risk of thrombosis is very low as long as you sort of restart soon after. And that, to me, suggests that perhaps you get a effect that that lasts much longer than the actual anticoagulant effect which is what we touched on earlier what do you think yeah it might be so technically the 
the half-life, so technically you have to take the drug every 24 hours um, to, to uh, retain the anticoagulant function. But yeah, as you said, you can, you can pause it without any uh, increase in thrombotic risk. So I think it depends on for how long you stop it. So if it's for an operation, so for a couple of days, mm. um, I don't think um, there's much of an effect on it. But then if you completely switch, either switch to a different drug or um, completely uh, avoid any uh, any further trauma prophylaxis if, if it's not if it's not needed anymore you might see a, a reversal of the um, beneficial in quotes effects that um, rivaroxaban might have on, on the endothelium do you think how, how long I, I appreciate you probably won't know the answer to this but how long do you think sort of the, the the gene expression effects last do you think they last for hours days weeks does this it's sort of fundamentally to, change people's physiology? It's hard to say. So, because um, we don't really look at the gene expression, so um, that would be a very interesting thing to do uh, to see what the the microRNAs or um, mRNAs in our patients, um, if there's any up or down regulation. Mm. Um, but then, technically, the EVs have a very small, a very short half life as well. It's usually only a couple of hours. Okay. So um, I think it's more short-term effects than than like a long-term thing, okay. even if rivaroxaban stops. Okay. And if you, let's say you reverse rivaroxaban with indexinet, what do you think would happen? Do you think, um, do you think you get a spike in EVs or do you think they just sort of come down on their own? You're not going to know the answer to this. That's, that's a good question. I don't know, no. Yeah. Okay, I think these are all these are all really interesting things to, to look at, aren't they? Um, do you think that this could help us decide when to restart anticoagulation when when patients stop? Um, for example, if someone comes with a bleed, we'll stop their rivaroxaban, and no one really knows when to restart it, if at all. I think there's good evidence that restarting DOACs is beneficial for patients after major bleeds. Do you think we could be looking at EVs as a bit of a biomarker? Is that a realistic prospect? Many people try to use EVs as biomarkers, but then with the lack of standardization, it's really hard to um, mm. get it approved. So we would need like very rigor um, uh, types of measurement and especially like cutoff values, which are not established at the moment to, to use EVs as a biomarker. But once that's developed, it might be. But yeah, I think it would need like very large clinical studies to see um, if stopping um, anticoagulation has an effect on the EV levels and to what extent this is predictive of uh, the risk of thrombosis or the risk of uh, more bleeds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I think, a long way down the line. And do you think that um, perhaps, this is just me speculating, so like low-dose low DOAC, so low-dose rivaroxaban, for example, in the absence of a classical indication for anticoagulation, you know, someone that's not out of DVT or not got AF, um, but maybe has risk of thrombosis in other ways or is getting older or has other in inflammatory conditions. Do you think that there's the scope for it? Let's say there's scope for a trial of Rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice a day in people who are over 80 and see if it impacts overall survival. Or do you think it's too dangerous? 
Yeah, with the with the seen effect on uh, inflammation, yes, it could have uh, a beneficial effect in in this population. But then, um, yeah, it always has to be accounted for the the increased risk in bleeding. Because even in the Compass trial, adding two point five milligrams of rivaroxaban twice daily did increase mm. the risk of major bleeding uh, in the in the patient population yeah. compared to aspirin alone. So um, that's probably the major safety uh, safety um, point of view that has to be considered, um, so that even like, like very low doses do have an anticoagulant effect and can lead to major bleeding. Do you think there's an opportunity to maybe inhibit these pathways in a different way? Now that we know that 10A activates, um, activates these PARs and then there's downstream signaling. Do you think there's an opportunity to sort of abrogate those systems in a different way? So you get the, the anti-inflammatory effect, but not the anticoagulant effect. I think it's very hard to achieve that because both the anticoagulant effect and the anti-inflammatory effect are mediated by basically the same uh, the same uh, yeah. factor 10A. So um, stopping one by retaining the other, I don't think it's it's possible. Okay. It's not that uh, so because it's the same. I think it's the same binding side um, of or the same active side of factor 10A that mediates both pathways so um i don't think there can be any any distinguish okay um do you think that the other doax pixaban doxaban and the bigger tram which has got a different mechanism action would have similar effect um so yeah there are some studies especially with the pixaban that it shows um power inhibition as well and then uh the big as well as a as a factor two inhibitor um on because trombin can activate um Proteas of parts as well, um, so they show similar effects. But as far as I know, they're most pronounced so far with rivaroxaban. Okay. Um, um, so it, it depends on some some of the studies compare um, apixaban to rivaroxaban, and then from my point of view, you wouldn't expect to see a difference between them mm. because they have the same mechanism of action. Um, but then others, uh, some show uh, show a difference between them, some don't. And when compared to warfarin, apixaban usually has uh, similar um, similar uh, effects on inflammation as rivaroxaban would have. Okay, fascinating stuff. Um, let me ask a question. What was the most frustrating thing in your PhD? Um, at some point, it was the patient recruitment because it was okay. very it was very slow. So we had a lot of clinics we could recruit from, but our um, our uh, patient uh, inclusion criteria were quite strict. So even if we had a patient recruited, then when we went back to the patient's history, there was like this one thing that excluded okay. the patient again. So um, we ended up with a lot less patients than we were, um, that we wanted to. And then, um, yeah, because of COVID now, we had like a lot, like uh, very restricted access to the lab and all the in-person clinics uh, had to be canceled as well. So that pre um, that like terminated my patient recruitment uh, a lot earlier than expected, okay. but um, still, yeah, we, I managed to get it through um, and I still enjoyed it. So um, yeah, I, I still, I still like my PhD. I, I don't hate it. It's fantastic PhD. Tell me about the rest of the PhD. Are you allowed to tell me what else you've done or is it, does it, is it linked to this closely or is it slightly different? Um, yeah, it's uh, all pretty much related. So uh, what we've published was a patient cohort of atrial fibrillation and we perform um, 
a similar study with patients with venous thrombosis, so with DVT and pulmonary embolism at the moment. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have a collaboration with uh, the University Hospital in Galway and uh, Professor Martin O'Donnell, who um, is uh, part of the COMPASS uh, investigators. Okay. And we received some samples, some plasma samples from patients from the COMPASS trial as well on uh, baseline aspirin. And then uh, six months later on the uh, twice daily rivaroxaban plus aspirin. And um, we're going to look at the changes in uh, in certain in EV markers and uh, proteomic profiles and other markers over time. Okay, and you've you've done that work, have you? Uh, yeah, it's but it's not published yet. Fine, fine. I won't ask you to uh, tell me what you found. I think I can guess. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And then um, what would if you? I understand you're going to stay on in Dublin for another couple of years. Um, yeah. If I don't know what your plans are, but if you could take this work forward, where would you go with it? What's your what's your burning questions? Um, it would be really nice to see the effects of the extracellular vesicles in in vitro, so um, enrich for them and uh, incubate endothelial cells uh, with them to see if we can um, mirror some sort of the anti-inflammatory effects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that would be one thing, but it's. Uh, I don't think it's feasible with the amount of plasma that we get from the patients. Maybe if we do it from, from pooled samples and uh, they have to be very highly pure for that as well. So um, it might need some optimization, but it would be very, very interesting to do it. And then, yeah, look at um, the distribution of, uh, or the cellular origin of the, of the large EVs. If there's any, any changes in certain uh, subpopulations from certain cell types, that would probably be how, how do you find that out? How do you find out where the EVs have come from? So we would use fluorescently labeled um, antibodies against surface markers. So for, for example, for platelet origin, it's usually uh, CD41, uh -huh. CD42B. Then for endothelial cells, um, ICAM or uh, VE catherin. Okay. Um, then so, or or myol myoloperoxidase for neutrophils. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, we haven't done that yet. Okay. Um, if you could give some top tips to someone starting a PhD, i.e. me, <laughs> in a similar field, what, what would it be? Um, so I don't know what's, uh, how, the, how the requirements for your uh, PhD are, but uh, for me, it was like I had to do mandatory modules. So try to get your, uh, I had to do 30 credits in modules, get that done as soon as possible because it takes up so much time. Yeah. And then once, if you're working with patients as well, try to um, recruit them as, as uh, quickly as possible. So you probably have the advantage you're still based in the hospital then, are you? Yeah, because yeah. for me, I'm a, I'm a basic scientist, so um, I I wasn't involved in a patient recruitment myself. So I always had to uh, call the clinician on call and ask some um, uh, usually medical students if they would be free that day, that time uh, to recruit the patients. And if that's not possible, then like I would miss the patient because I wouldn't be allowed to do it myself. Um, but then otherwise, yeah, in, enjoy the time. It's like I. It's, it's hard to say, especially now that I'm in the writing up state and it can get really frustrating when you read five papers for a line, but um, overall it's, it's a good learning experience. And even if your experiments will fail, um, they, you, you, will, you will learn from it and you will um, 
yeah, gain a lot of experience. And what I think is very important as well, which I lacked a bit during, uh, during COVID as well, um, go to conferences and network with the people in your field to, um, yeah, to just in increase your, uh, make yourself known and then you can you get you get opportunities yeah well hopefully more than 10 people will listen to this podcast Louisa and hear how <laughs> articulate and clever and amazing your science is so uh, really really well done um I think we'll leave it there thank you so much for joining us this is exactly what I wanted on this podcast just to you know talk about exciting exciting new research from young people who um are really driven and, and interested in the future of medicine and, and then yeah basically speculate and make some unfounded opinions and statements about the future of medicine as well so fantastic um it's so so good to speak to you and um you know good luck for everything you do in the future thank you So I'm so thankful to Louisa for taking the time out of her day to talk to me about her paper, which is called Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation Patients Anticoagulated with Rivaroxaban Compared with Warfarin Exhibit Reduced Circulating Extracellular Vesicles with Attenuated Pro-Inflammatory Protein Signatures. It's open access in the journal Thrombosis and Hemostasis, and it is really well written and fairly easy to read, um, so I fully recommend you have a little look. And I'll put the link to that paper in the show notes so that it's easy to find. I really do wish Louisa all the best for the future. She's clearly a lovely, very, very talented scientist working in a really productive, incredible group in Dublin. Her work's very thoughtful and novel and raises lots more questions that can be investigated in future study. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be treated as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of the content but if you do notice any errors, feel free to send me some constructive criticism on Twitter. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is recorded and produced by Richard Booker and music is by Scott Holmes. 